Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. Once again, trying to understand the remarkable protests in China. You may already have heard a podcast interview I recorded with Professor William Hurst from Cambridge University. But I think this is such a fascinating and unfolding story. I want to dig deep and I want to find out much more about it. I'm going to speak now to Dr. Ying Miao. Ying is a senior lecturer in politics at Aston University with a specialism in Chinese politics. Ying was born in China and came to the UK at the age of 12. Ying, welcome to the Byline Times podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on. We heard from Professor Hurst about some of the immediate causes of the protest, but you want to talk more broadly about the Chinese middle classes, because these are people who've done extremely well out of President Xi. And it seems that at least some of the people in the Chinese middle class are now turning against him. Why? I think one of the key psychological impetuses behind people's reactions to the Wumuti fire and the Guizhou bus, the, the one that has crashed, is that for a very long time in China, people have believed that they have a way to manage the risks of living in China under the uncertainties and the risks associated with the zero COVID policies. So of all the news that came out of the lockdown, you know, the people not being able to get to hospitals on time, scarcities in food, people have always thought, especially the middle classes, they always thought that as long as I have got my connections, if you know the right kind of people, if you have money, for example, if you have you studied hard and you belong to an elite institution, perhaps later compared to the migrant workers in terms of layoffs and the economic downturn. So there was always this idea that that risk can be managed. But increasingly, as the lockdown became more stringent, especially with local implementations, a lot of the times there's just sort of organized chaos. People don't really know what's happening and you don't really have the rules to follow. You don't know what kind of game you're playing. You don't know how you can manage or circumnavigate that. And this has basically culminated in the Urumqi fire and a bus crash. So everybody's sitting there and thinking, this is not the type of risk that I can manage. I will not be able to get out if this were me. Every escape route has been nailed shut. It doesn't matter whether you know the right people. It doesn't matter if you have money. If you're on that bus, if you're in that building with the doors being nailed shut, there's nothing you can do about it. And that basically means that COVID is the great randomizer and equalizer. So that basically has made people more fearful and feel like this is more relevant to them now. You mentioned the fire, and I think listeners in the UK will be familiar with that story where a number of people are believed to have died because they were effectively locked in to an apartment block because of COVID restrictions. And when a fire happened, the rescue services couldn't reach them because of the level of security. Tell us more about the bus crash. The Guizhou bus crash happened when an entire building was asked to be transferred to a quarantine centre. And they did that in the middle of the night when technically uh, these coach and buses should not be driving on the roads. And very importantly, everybody was asked to dress in those white overalls that scientifically doesn't actually do much because the increasing evidence have shown that fomite transmission is not a great risk for COVID. So they were dressed up in overalls, which limited the driver's field visibility. And obviously, they were driving in the middle of the night around two o'clock, three o'clock-ish. Everybody was very tired and the visibility was very poor. The road conditions were very poor. So the crash has happened. And afterwards, again, you know, the state narrative had 
tried to come back and then describe it as a way of this is an unfortunate traffic accident. In every single case, a tragedy such as this has happened, the state has always tried to manage the narrative by saying that the risk is actually under control. This is an unfortunate accident. This is an isolated incident. This doesn't happen very often. And this is one of the key concepts, I think, in the Chinese public space right now, which is the risk under control versus the risk out of control to opposing views. From the grassroots, it's always the risk out of control. And I think that view is now becoming predominant and people are feeling that it could be them. And we are seeing that in the slogans as well. You know, it could be you on the bus, it could be all of us on the bus. And that's why it's such a trigger point right now for these kind of protests. As you've described this, you paint a picture of a society where middle-class people have a root to negotiate the difficulties of ordinary life. And that route partly depends on wealth and it depends on connections. But because of the very particular manifestation of COVID lockdown in China, all of those advantages that you might ordinarily have as a middle-class person have disappeared. That's right. So the Chinese middle class have learned how to play the game. And to an extent, they have learned to do a kind of a trade-off between certain privacy, for example, or personal freedoms for economic gain. So for a very long time, the CCP's legitimacy has have rested on economic growth and providing a good life for all. And the middle class are the beneficiaries of that, and they are the vested interest in that. And they do see that for them, under this system, it works for them. But COVID lockdowns are the great randomizer because the power having then transferred to the local administrative centers, it could be the people wearing the white coveralls guarding your door. You don't know where they come from. You don't know if you have any sort of official recognition. They wear this. They tell you you can't go out because of this COVID restrictions and you've not seen the regulations. All of the COVID rules are now deliberately vague or perhaps they change day in, day out, or perhaps the central government says something and the local implementation is completely different. So you can't really navigate this game anymore. And even if you have connections, where they are will not be able to help you of where you are if somebody has a stroke or there's a fire then there's a time element in there so even if you have the connections by the time it works then it's too late so that really kind of brings out the fear inherent fear which is you're no longer able to manage this risk and uncertainties so that sort of gets the imagination going as well and because of lockdown i'm guessing economically China is experiencing a very difficult period, and that's going to impact directly on those middle classes. You hinted right at the start that those are the people who perhaps can hold on to their jobs for longer than people who don't have the connections. But ultimately, if vast numbers of people are not going out of their house, offices and factories aren't working, there must be an economic downside to that, which impacts upon those who have become used to quite a comfortable standard of living. Absolutely. And especially among the young people where they perhaps grew up expecting if you study hard, you go to an elite university, you'll be able to get a good job. And they can see that the economy or at least the the idea of the economy was doing really well until the stringent lockdowns. And since then, it has really tightened a lot. And, you know, there are massive layoffs in, in the Internet sector where usually the most number of money can be made. All sorts of companies are reducing their recruitment targets. So they are feeling that pressure as well. So they also worry about their future. And also at the same time, I think it's not entirely fair to say that the middle class are spearing this because we, we focus on middle class quite a lot. But there is also 
the migrant workers, the students, you've got the workers, everybody's affected to a different degree, but also at the same time, we're all the same in that sense. Even for the middle classes, they can see. So their good life previously perhaps had been built on things like being able to get deliveries very fast, being able to get takeaways very fast. And all of that has had a knock-on impact as well. So they can see that the, the people who are supporting their lifestyle is being hurt in turn, which hurts their lifestyle as well. So it's not something that you can really ignore. Despite the censorship, I think it will be extremely rare for somebody who's living in China right now who haven't felt the impact of the lockdown restriction or haven't really sort of thought about actually this is affecting our lifestyle in, in the way perhaps that's unforeseen. I mentioned the middle classes, A, because I know that's been an area of specialism of yours, but also in my conversation with Professor Hurst, he talked about many of the people spearheading these protests being young professionals in their 20s and 30s, not especially students, not necessarily older workers, but this new generation who have grown up expecting a degree of affluence and haven't known perhaps the hardships of the past in mm -hmm. China. And for them, that sense of well-being as a normal feature of life has suddenly been taken away from them. Well, that's right. And I think that's where the brand narrative works the opposite of what it wants to work, because you've promised the people a good life. You've promised that nothing's really happening in China and it's all good. And the propaganda machine works out how the world is terrible outside. And then you show the World Cup when people are watching the games without wearing masks. So there is that kind of disillusioned effect of saying that actually things are perhaps not what you promised them to be. And you can see a lot of people also saying things like, we have been trying to understand, we have been trying to do what you tell us to do, but it's not really working out the way that you promised it will work out. I'm not entirely sure if the protest we're seeing right now is spearheaded by anyone, really. I feel like it's more a spontaneous response. It's an outpouring of grief, it's outpouring of anger and pent up frustration. And that's perhaps why, you know, the white paper is so symbolic, because nothing is really written on it. There is no uniform slogan. You know, people, what people say in Shanghai is not the same as what people say in Wuhan or Urumqi or, or Hangzhou or, or Guangzhou or anywhere. And the slogan is in the eye of the beholder. But everybody knows that there is a great equalizer that we're experiencing, which is the restrictions, which is what's happening in China right now. And that's the symbolic importance of it. And the white paper indicates censorship, people not being free to speak their mind. How important is that in China? You've talked about the trade-off between affluence and surveillance. Aside from this particular moment, do people in China have the same concerns about freedom and self-expression generally that we do in the West, or are we in danger of trying to read our politics and our culture into Chinese life? Yeah, I think there's definitely a discrepancy there, shall we say, because in China, people used to have that kind of trade-offs, mostly because there's no other choice. There isn't something like GDPR that protects, you know, say that you have, this is something that the companies have to follow. And if you don't give over your private data to this company or that, then the state has access to it anyway. So people think there's really no point in trying to protect your privacy. And also, again, because of the narrative, because of the way that uh, people are being taught, the idea is that 
what have you got to hide? If you want to protect your privacy, it's always the idea is, oh, you must be doing something untoward. That's why you don't want people to know. If you have nothing to hide, then you don't have to worry about that at all. And, and there is conveniences that comes from that trade-off as well. You know, Previously, people have really celebrated the idea of the QR code that gets you everywhere. It's so easy. You swipe a code, you get everything. You don't even need to carry cash. But now, obviously, under the COVID restrictions, we've seen that this QR code can really restrict your movement as well. So there's always that kind of two sides of the argument to technology. And it, and in China, we can see that technology has been used as a form of increasing uh, social control as well. And I think people are starting to realize that. Um, people who have never considered themselves as doing anything onward have also been impacted by the technology, by the QR codes, by all of these things. So then they start thinking, well, this is not fair because it shouldn't be impacting people like me. So what kind of restrictions do people face then? And what kind of surveillance do they face in an everyday situation that we in the West would find uncomfortable? Too many to count, really. Um, <laughs> so the WeChat, for example, the most popular platform for personal communication in China, it's equivalent to WhatsApp. I think it's the largest personal communication platform in the world that is not end-to-end -end encrypted. So anything you send on WeChat can be read, and in fact is read. So if you send a link on WeChat, for example, it is opened by the platform before the is received it. There are different ways to send it. You can be shadow banned. So if your IP is outside of China, it's sometimes during um, sensitive dates, the stuff you post can't be seen by, <laughs> by people inside China. There are certain messages that can be pre-filtered. So it's, it looks as if it's been sent, but it's not. And there are ways for people trying to get around that kind of censorship. So we are still seeing a, an explosion of messages in the what we call the friend circle, which is the inbuilt platform to share information that is heavily censored and people frequently get banned from the platform. But people try to use that. And we do know that everything you do on these platforms are watched, but it's the only thing that people can see is still the easiest way for communication to happen because otherwise that requires people to get over the firewall to get a VPN, which is even harder. And for many people, poses a greater risk. You can't easily access a, a VPN, for example. No, not at all. No, not at all. And uh, especially for students and everything. So it's, one again, one of those things that perhaps officially you can't really find a big enough law that says you can't do that. But in reality, on the ground, in universities, there will be people asking you, are you using this? You shouldn't be using this. There are people telling you off. There are people warning you against it. So just because there is no open law that says you can't do this, it's a gray area, doesn't mean that people don't have that ideal risk in their mind that is trying to self-censor. And the QR codes that you mentioned then on your mobile phone, as you say, in some respects, that might make life a lot easier. You'd have a QR code that shows, for example, that you've recently passed a COVID test. I had to use that to access certain music venues mm -hmm. in the post-lockdown era in the UK. You say it can be used as a, a form of currency. You can spend money through your QR code. How is a QR code on your phone used to restrict your liberty? The thing is, there's no uniform QR code anymore. In the very beginning, there's a couple of QR codes, and then it kind of just began to go out of hand, really. Different municipalities have different QR codes, and then different companies have different QR codes. Then you've got the location code, you've got your own health code. There's different names for different codes. And I think also critically, nobody really knows who controls these codes. So technically, these codes should be linked to your COVID tests. But we have seen incidences of protesters or people who are being watched and sensitive people. They have been granted red codes 
arbitrarily, despite not having the positive COVID test or anything like that. So it could be used as a form of social control. And more and more people have encountered this, had or heard of somebody who have had this happen to them. What happens if you've got a red code? What happens then? It depends on where you are, really. In places where it's more heavily controlled, that could mean you dragged away to a quarantine camp, or you could just be forced to stay at home. You can't leave. Or if you have one single red code in your compound, the entire neighborhood could be locked down. That's entirely up to what's happening at the local administrative center. So you don't know. If we do, then there's a way to circumvent that risk, basically. But essentially, then, at its most extreme, having a red code could effectively make you a prisoner in the open air or a prisoner at home. You are restricted from engaging in social activities, restricted from going into your local town or city centre. That's right. And it carries a stigma as well, because people do blame you, because usually if you have a red cold, it doesn't just affect you, it affects your family, everybody you come in touch with, it affects your neighbourhood. You know, if you're in a neighbourhood chat, people will be throwing nasty words at you, thinking that you have inconvenienced them. And there are even cases we have heard that people have been publicly shamed and basically be criticised just because they've caught COVID. So that that kind of risk weighs a lot on people's minds as well, that kind of uh, social stigma. We've had lockdowns in the UK, lockdowns which many people felt uncomfortable with, but which on balance, I think most sensible people recognised were important to restrict the spread of COVID-19 and from which, albeit that COVID hasn't disappeared, we are now emerging from. Why has Xi gone so full on for the idea of zero COVID? I think this is partly because she wanted a separate road compared to what's happening in the West. So he is very set on the whole struggle against the West. China has carved its own separate road sort of uh, narrative. It fits in with his grand narrative. And also, again, it's about social control. One of the key questions I think the Chinese should ask is that why are there no mRNA vaccines allowed into China? Because on balance... I don't think it's fair to compare lockdowns in the UK to China because these are two complete ballparks of games. It's completely different. However, we do have to recognize that China as a country, as a regime, it has more political tools in the toolbox to mobilize people in initial stages where lockdown might have been useful to curb the spread of the virus. And this is where you win the time to build up your medical resources, to hasten your vaccination efforts. You know, this is how you come out of it and then reduce the death rate and everything. But I think then China did not agree to the importing of the Pfizer or Moderna or any of the mRNA vaccines fixing on trying to push for zero COVID instead. And that has sort of led China to be in this situation right now, whereas looking at the possibility of an exit wave and there's very little we can do about it right now because the accountability system, the, the way it works in China is that you're accountable to your superiors above. So even with the 20 edicts that came out, so basically the idea that hints that perhaps China is going to open up a little bit, which got people excited. It turns out because people who are implementing these rules are still accountable to the superiors. So if you have a breakout in your local neighborhood, then it's still your job on the line. That has led actually conversely to even more lockdowns, which then it creates that kind of discrepancy, that sort of a disillusionment and obviously makes people even more angry because you've got people's hopes up. 
to be fair, I don't think anybody knows why China insists on zero COVID because it really is not a scientific decision. I think it's above all a political decision. In fact, Xi Jinping himself has said over and over again, this is a political fight. This is something we have to stand firm on from, from a political point of view rather than strictly speaking scientific. I've heard there have been problems with the rollout of the vaccination program in China. But are you telling me that the mRNA vaccine, which was the breakthrough vaccine that helped to prevent many more cases of COVID in the UK and across the West generally, are you telling me that that is not allowed in China at the moment? Well, obviously, these are all the information we're hearing. There's there's no official confirmation one way or the other. But at the beginning, there were talks of Pfizer and Moderna being imported into China. And then that sort of just disappeared, didn't happen. And then China started talking about trying to develop its own vaccines. But I think to this day, there's not much about that. China has been continuously making efforts trying to develop their own vaccine, specific ways of dealing with COVID, specific special drugs. The key thing, again, has to be Chinese made. And I think there was also something about asking Moderna for a knowledge exchange in order for a market share or something like that. So there was always that kind of focus on, you know, China needs to get something out of it rather than, you know, we there, there's this ready-made vaccine that works. And also... For those people who are in China, the kind of information they're getting um, that's shown to them every day uh, is that the vaccines in America doesn't work. Loads of people die in America. And in fact, there was this one clip that was shown over and over again of this American nurse who had mRNA vaccine who then fainted because of the needle phobia rather than the mRNA vaccine. So that had that kind of effect on people's mental impression of vaccines. Oh, this is very dangerous. And in fact, this had an unintended and unwanted knock-on effect, which is the take-up rate for the domestic vaccines actually very low as well, especially among the elderly. Again, because of the accountability system, because of a lot of the local doctors don't want people come back to them and say, oh, I've had the vaccines and I don't feel well because of it. So we, we, China is also plagued by the same anti-vaxxer sensations that we've seen in the West. And there's nothing you can do about it because it competes against the grand narrative as well. So that kind of vaccination drive is not very successful. So either way, China is not really ready if it were to open up. So China, having not accepted the mRNA vaccine, is now having people resisting more conventional vaccines. That's right, because it's difficult to tell the difference between vaccines. It's just a mistrust of vaccines in general. So we are seeing in a lot of the protests, people are saying things like Omicron is basically a cold, common cold, and this is a hoax, which is not true. So I think it's also going in the other extreme by, by saying that, oh, actually, you can see that in the West, Omicron is ripping through the population and it's fine. But they neglecting the fact that in the West, there is some sort of a herd immunity is a bad word, but, in the, but that's what it is. But China is not equipped for that. So I think this is not working out scientifically well for the population. In terms of the president's grand narrative, is part of that, in essence, a nationalistic narrative, the desire for China to establish a production base in technology, in all the breakthrough fields of modern science and the desire to hog that, as it were, for itself, to make sure that China is a world leader in these fields and to mark it out as separate from the West, which might have these values of freedom and democracy that might be troubling to Beijing. Is this all bound up in the same kind of grand narrative, do you think? I think so, because she has 
insisted that China wants to be self-reliant. And this is a sort of a continuing line in the CCP narrative, but he's sort of pushed that even more now because China needs to be self-reliant on a lot more technologically advanced fields, of which vaccine is a critical component because uh, China is lacking in the mRNA vaccines. And it's the technology itself, not necessarily just the vaccine. So uh, it's medical frontier of the research in semiconductor industry and everything that is necessary for a superpower in the 21st century for China's continuing ascent. So she perhaps is less convinced or, or shall we say more mistrustful, perhaps the globalization process than its predecessors. Yet China has benefited massively from globalization, hasn't it? The wealth that we've been talking about, the wealth of those middle classes, albeit that there is now pushback from countries like the United States and the UK who have seen manufacturing offshored in many cases to China. China has been, I would suggest, the world's greatest beneficiary. That's right. China's rise in the past couple of decades is definitely the greatest beneficiary, as you say, of globalization. But at the same time, I think for the current leadership, that has posed a challenge as well, because inevitably with globalization, then comes in different values and different challenging ideas and people start to request different things than perhaps what he wants. And the ideas and thoughts becomes harder to control. So for him, there has to be a trade-off there as well. I don't believe that the Chinese leadership overall wants to tank the Chinese economy. That's in nobody's interests. But the political control is absolutely the forefront of their minds. And zero COVID is now tied in with their legitimacy as well, because the grand narrative have continuously said America has failed spectacularly. India has failed. So there was a period where every day the Chinese news were talking about how the exit wave of India was horrendous. The UK is a massive scarecrow, basically, for, for the Chinese media. So they, they, they read a lot about what's happening in the UK and how things have gone really badly. So that also set up the expectation for, for people. So if China opens up and there's an exit wave, then this is essentially all of the horrifying thing you've seen on the television is going to happen to them. So that makes part of the people sort of saying we have to continue zero COVID. And also part of the people say, actually, that's not what's happening. And we need to look for an alternative way out. So this is polarizing society in that way as well. And we have these bigger geopolitical pressures, don't we? In the UK, there's a semiconductor factory in Swansea, in South Wales, where the government, the UK government has said it can't be bought out by Chinese investors. We've got restrictions now on Chinese technology companies like Huawei, both in the United States and in the UK. And there are tensions over Taiwan, which China calls Taipei, over which it has claims of sovereignty, which is also a major producer of these semiconductors that are key to driving forward technology into the 21st century. So the Chinese government is looking globally. There's pressures there. It's looking internally. And... These are protests that could have ramifications, not just for the Chinese government, but around the world. We don't know how these protests will pan out. But as I said, I think in its current stages, it's definitely more spontaneous. And it's definitely more about an outpouring of emotion, of grief, of anger, of frustration, rather than necessarily calling for anything, despite what we might have seen in the slogans. So I think right now, the most obvious 
ask is that for people to continue to be able to have a livelihood, they want to live, essentially. Fire comes, if the bus crashes, their, their literal livelihood will be threatened. Um, for, for everything else, I think I'm not entirely certain or convinced that these protests are that necessarily related to any of the grander strategic moves that China is making. And in fact, three years of lockdowns have made people more convinced that they need to look at what's happening in their own lives, you know, secure what's in their rice bowl first before worrying about the grander moves of the country. People say these are absolutely related, which I completely agree, you know, to, to what extent is the social control also a precursor for perhaps something, you know, more to come. We don't know that. I think that the leadership definitely have to contend with all of these tension points. And the semiconductor industry is one of the key things because we have seen the zero COVID does impact the economy a lot. And China, if wants to emerge to be a continue to grow as a global superpower, then it needs to industrial upgrade. Semiconductor is a huge component of that. But also the other thing is it's not enough for China just to buy that factory in Wales because the semiconductor industry is a globalized industry. So you have different countries fabricating in different stages. So if China wants to do it by themselves, then they can perhaps succeed in one, but it will create a lot of trouble for the leadership or there's a lot of effort involved for you to compete with every single country who is now at the forefront of these industries. So I think we have to wait and see where this goes, but I don't think we should blow it out of proportion, really. Ying, it's been great to speak to you. Thank you. That's Dr. Ying Miao, who is a senior lecturer at Aston University. My name is Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast. Before we go, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which features content that you can't read anywhere else. We don't have a millionaire backer. There is no big corporation behind us. We rely instead on ordinary readers and listeners like you maybe to support our fearless independent journalism. So if you want to find out how to subscribe, head over to our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. Subscriptions start from as little as £3 a month. So go on, if you can, help us out. Head over to bylinetimes.com and take out a subscription to the Byline Times. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.